thought capital. No cash changes hands. Energy justice, tax incentives, environmental concerns, resource taxation, highly competitive. Australia is missing out. The social disorganization theory. We cannot think of China as just one big market. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. For many years, the gigantic and growing Chinese consumer market has glimmered on the horizon like a giant goldmine for Western companies. But while many have been successful in doing business in China, perhaps a great many more have not. The Chinese takes a long time to get to know a person. They want to understand how you operate, you as a person, before they are willing to conduct a business deal with you. The cultural differences, language barriers, contrasting customs can be daunting to conquer, not to mention a different legal and political system. To guide us through the Chinese business environment and what Australians need to know to prosper in the Chinese market is Professor Tat Kay from the Department of Marketing. Welcome, Professor Tad. Thank you for having me. There is an entire industry devoted to how to do business in China. Is it worth half the paper it's printed on those books? Well, I suppose uh, this industry is there because there is a need in the first place for foreign business people to better understand uh, the Chinese business people and the Chinese business environment. But having read a few of these books myself, um, obviously the quality varies. There are some that are very, very good and some that are rather slapdash uh, and not really worth the paper that is printed on. You're originally from Malaysia, overseas Chinese, but you've studied in, worked in, taught in China and obviously devoted a large part of your life to researching and working on it. What do you see as the main differences between doing business in China and doing business in Australia? What are the first ground rules you've got to get right? Obviously in China, you know, one would have to understand um, the economic environment, the legal environment, the political environment, the technological environment, which are rather different from what they are in Australia and many other developed countries. China has one of the oldest civilizations in the world, going back to close to 5,000 years. Uh, the Chinese are very proud of that. Uh, you know, they do know their history. But somewhere along the way, I suppose, uh, things changed, especially in late uh, 19th and early 20th centuries, you know, there were historical issues, uh, political issues. Other nations made far better progress than the Chinese did. But since uh, the late 70s, when uh, Deng Xiaoping opened up the market, uh, things evolved very quickly. Since then, I suppose, you know, many other foreign companies uh, saw this opportunity in, in China and want to uh, get a, a piece of the action. But I would caution them not to go in too quickly. You know, one has to have a, a good understanding of how the Chinese mind works. That is the big question. You've had the benefit of seeing it as an outsider and then an insider. How do you answer that question, the difference between how the Chinese mind works and the average Australians? I suppose the biggest difference uh, in that sense is the Chinese culture. The Chinese mindset is informed by the culture that they have had for the past 5,000 years. Uh, probably the most 
important aspect of Chinese culture to understand is uh, Confucianism. One has to have uh, moral authority, so that will impact the way one behaves. You know, so they are more collectivistic in that sense as opposed to being individualistic. The Chinese also emphasizes uh, hierarchy. So there are several aspects of uh, Chinese culture that are informed by Confucianism, and I think the Australian business person uh, would do well to try to understand. That's the theory behind it. The practical application, though, I'm an Australian businessman. I think I've got a better mousetrap to sell in China. I like taking shortcuts. How do I do it? Shortcuts I would advise against, mainly because um, the Chinese tend to have a, um, a long-term view of things. You know, we would have come across stories or heard about anecdotes about how uh, some Western people, you know, went to China, assuming that, you know, once you have a legal contract drawn up, things would be carried out as per the contract. Uh, but again, the Chinese mindset is slightly different. This is not to say that, you know, they would disregard a legal contract, which would have been drafted after some negotiations that go on beforehand. But I guess here arises the concept of guanxi that, you know, uh, many of you would have heard about. Simply translated, guanxi is just about relationships. But it actually goes a lot deeper beyond just this word relationship. Guanxi um, essentially comes from two Chinese characters. Quan refers to the gate or the door, and she has the implication of also a bit of hierarchy. So you are trying to open the door into this hierarchy, to be connected to them. And uh, that's very hard, particularly if you're an outsider and you have got no one to introduce you. They, they have different levels of guanxi. So I suppose blood ties will be the strongest because then you are seen as family and there will be trust there, implicit. Close friends, you know, people from the same village, for example, uh, you know, people that they have known since childhood. Friends that are introduced by close friends, you know, that would form the third layer of guanxi. And then finally you would have strangers or acquaintances, if you like. So the Chinese takes a long time to get to know a person. They want to understand you know, how you operate, you as a person, before they are willing to uh, conduct a business deal with you. Because a lot of it is it's based on trust. If I don't know you, even if there's a contract, right, simply because you are based in a different country and I'm here, then you know, whichever party breaks that, you know, that contract, then you know, both parties would suffer. Both parties would suffer. But if I know you as a person, as somebody who is trustworthy, you know, I, I understand you know, your family situation, your company situation, beyond just the accounting numbers, right? I have a good understanding of how things are in your situation, and likewise, you, know, you have a good understanding of my situation. And then with that understanding, we can then seal the deal and go deeper. Isn't there a danger though that Australian business people they understand that much, and so they go off to China and they have dinner and drinks, maybe bring their prospective partner to Australia, do those things and think, that's it, I've got Guangxi, let's get that contract signed, and rely on the Guangxi too much when actually it's not there, and things go apart very quickly, and they might be taking the legalities. True. 
you know, on the surface, you know, if you were to visit China as a foreigner, uh, they would be very warm and welcoming. You know, trust takes time to takes time to build. You know, it's not done over a meal or a drink. You know, it could take months or maybe even years before both sides understand each other very, very well. Well, let's be blunt. They can find that despite the contract, the contract's not on it, that there are levels of difficulty in doing business in China, whether bureaucratic or that lack of trust, um, that are hard to overcome. How do they get to the next stage? I suppose one has to be prepared to negotiate for some time before anything actually happens, anything tangible happens. The negotiation uh, process, I suppose, can be broken down into three parts. The initial stages of pre-negotiation, the actual negotiation itself, and post-negotiation. The pre-negotiation stage is whereby they get to know you, right? So this is where the Duquanxi actually starts to get built, okay? They have to learn to trust you as a as a viable business partner before they actually do business with you. Both sides would send both their, their managers or their people to talk to each other, to visit the factories, etc., etc. Now, the, the commercial negotiation itself, you know, would involve things like the prices, the terms of the contract, you know, uh, the, the, the distribution channels, etc., etc., right? So these are the technicalities that would have to be worked out very closely. And then after they have come to, I suppose, you know, drawn up their legal contracts, then the actual thing uh, that happens uh, would be now that we have a contract and we are starting to do business, then they would also closely observe how is this turning out as a business partnership. A complaint I have about Australian business and Australian diplomacy is that we will send someone overseas for a year or two and then pull them out again. If you look at the, you know, the great British Hongs that made success in China, that was a job for life. We haven't got that mindset. Can we succeed despite it? Well, I certainly hope so, you know, given the importance of the Chinese market to the Australian economy, right? A lot of Australian business has focused on export of resources and minerals. As the Chinese economy moves from export-driven growth to consumption-driven growth, it provides further opportunities for Australian companies to exploit. The middle class is booming and their tastes are specific. And there are also more geographic opportunities. Instead of concentrating just on the larger cities, we could be targeting other areas, both when it comes to what we sell, but also where we sell it. China also, I think, has a strong need for healthcare and aged care. Uh, that's something that they're not very experienced uh, in doing. And I suppose uh, if uh, Australian companies uh, you know, take the right approach to uh, this industry as well, they would see a lot of potential. But besides uh, services, uh, certainly other sectors that could benefit um, you know, the Australian companies would include um, the, the food sector and the dairy products. My own take on it would be, if the Chinese is going to the trouble of buying an imported product, let's say red wine, then they wouldn't want something that is low-end. You know, they would be willing to pay for something that is high quality, right? So, which is why, for example, you know, uh, Treasury Wines has had a mixed success, you know, in the, in the Chinese market among their Chinese customers. While the high-end brand like uh, Penfold uh, would do well, 
because it is premium, it's luxury, and the Chinese are willing to pay top dollar for such wines. Australian brands that are top-notch quality would still continue to find uh, China to be a, a very welcoming uh, market, but those that are at the low end and trying to make it based on price alone uh, will, I think, struggle a lot more. A lot of the success that Australia has enjoyed with China, it was stuff that China wanted to buy, and so it's been the keenness of the buyer rather than the skill of marketing of the seller. Have we got to move to that next level? I mean, Penfolds is doing it, yes. They've got more red ink on their labels and flash bottles and all sorts of things. But the average would-be Australian business person, they've got to become better at selling too rather than waiting for an order from. Absolutely. This is where marketing comes into the picture. When there is high demand, anything would sell well. But when things get a lot more competitive, good marketing skills become very, very important. Um, so in marketing, we talk about not only the four Ps of the product, the price, promotion, and place. You know, the positioning of the product is also very, very important, right? So how do you position your brand, especially if it's new to the Chinese market? How do you build the brand, you know? Uh, and that would be informed by a number of factors, including who is your partner, in, in, in China that is helping you to, to distribute or to market the product to the Chinese marketplace. Uh, we cannot think of China as just one big market. That would be a, a, a major mistake. Rather, if you think about it, China has 22 provinces. Uh, they have got two special administrative regions. Um, that would be uh, Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, they have um, four muni municipalities. Uh, that would be um, Beijing, Shanghai, Chongqing, and uh, Tianjin. And they would have uh, five uh, autonomous regions, mainly in the northeast of the country. Even among the big cities, you know, we have simple classifications like tier one cities like Beijing, Shanghai, you know, and then you've got the tier two cities, tier three cities. So. The uninformed Australian business person looking at China would say, well, definitely, you know, uh, the, the, the customers that can afford to, to pay for our products would be living in the tier one cities. Uh, yes and no. The tier one cities, uh, you know, customers, they would be very well informed. They live in the major cities. They have got access to information. And that's where a lot of the foreign brands also target. Right? So they have got choices among these varieties that they have on the shelves of the supermarkets. Um, the second and third tier cities would appear to be less informed, but nonetheless, that's where a bulk of the middle class is. Uh, the middle class, I would argue, is the most important part of any economy. That's, they are the ones that actually drive consumption. Without the middle class, you only have a very small proportion of the high end of the social class, the upper classes, uh, you know, but even though you know it could be three percent, obviously in a you know in a country with one point three or one point four billion people, it's still a lot of people. But then they would be going for the super premium brands, the high end luxury brands, whereas the middle class, they are the ones that can that already have an apartment, maybe two. You know, they they can afford to buy a car, right? And they have excess money that they want to spend on quality products, okay, goods and services. Um, and this is where uh, we have to pay attention to. 
So this particular segment of the Chinese market is growing very, very rapidly. And not all of them live in the tier one cities. Many of them live in the second tier cities. So it is amazing, you know, how little informed we are about, you know, the diversity and the, you know, pockets of growth in the Chinese economy uh, that we are not aware of. Australia has been increasingly conducting business with China since the 70s. If we compare society then and now, technology, especially the internet, has brought revolutionary change to how we communicate, trade and deliver goods. And in many ways, China is way ahead of us. Do Australians underestimate just how switched on, interconnected and advanced in terms of e-commerce that China is? China's uh, use of IT and e-commerce has actually surpassed uh, developed countries in some ways. Um, China is now increasingly a cashless society, meaning that, you know, while 10, 15 years ago, uh, you can't do business without cash, these days a lot of people are on the streets without having 100 yuan in their wallet. Um, all they need is their mobile phone, because on the phone they would have apps like WeChat or Alipay, which are linked directly to their bank accounts, and that is how they make transactions. And here we're talking about just even like buying a, a newspaper on the street or a, a simple meal from the cafeteria. You just uh, scan the QR code of the vendor and you know, in a matter of seconds, payment has been made and no cash changes hands physically. Alibaba certainly is uh, one of the biggest players. Their growth is much bigger than even in the US. So for example, on Singles Day, which is uh, November 11th every year, in just one day, their transactions of sales would surpass that of Christmas, Black Friday, Halloween, Valentine's Day combined in the US. That's how big the Chinese e-commerce market has become. And it's still growing very rapidly. And is that an area that Australian business is yet to try to tap into directly to get around perhaps the problem of local partnerships? If I get on eBay, I can buy stuff from China directly. Is it something we should be looking to do in reverse? Absolutely. I think we have to be, um, be very aware of these uh, new trends uh, that are happening. So obviously, you know, for Australian companies that are hoping to enter the Chinese markets, they have to know, you know, how e-commerce is actually changing the face of distribution uh, in, in, in China. So we, had, we actually have to have a very strong and, and capable partner, you know, with extensive networks there uh, to market our products. But the reverse is true. So Alibaba already has a presence, a very quiet presence in Australia currently. Uh, we are seeing Alipay, for example, being implemented in certain areas in the Australian economy. For example, I suppose uh, it won't be too long before we see uh, taxi drivers uh, accepting Alipay instead of credit cards uh, in, in, you know, for, for taxi rides uh, among their Chinese customers. Alipay and Ant Financial Company are actually changing financial institutions in China. The banks 
with their retail branches are actually increasingly seen as dinosaurs because they are very costly to operate. Setting up a branch, you know, with people there working full-time and all the hardware and everything uh, is very, very costly. So we are seeing that the banking sector, the financial sector in China is rapidly being transformed. And I would venture that such changes would be taking place in the Australian market in the not-too-long future. That middle class you mentioned, the big driving force of consumption, where do you see their tastes going to? The middle class, with their consumption power, they would consume things as before, but I would say at a higher level. They would be demanding more variety, more quality. Australian producers can also form cooperatives that give them bargaining power to penetrate the Chinese market more effectively. Big companies that are able to do that on their own, you know, food, pro uh, food product companies. Um, but increasingly, if you don't know the Chinese terrain, if you don't have the guanxi and the connections, uh, that will be very hard to you. Because remember, the Chinese are buying not only from Australia, even though we are selling most of our products you know, to China, but they are buying from the rest of the world. Brand Australia is worth something in China? I mean, we do have a bit of presence there? Absolutely, absolutely. You have an interest in sustainable goods. Is that a reflection of any rising middle class? Mm. As a consumer psychologist, I'm trying to understand, for example, what would make a consumer choose a regular product versus a green product. A green product as defined as one that is more beneficial or less harmful to the environment. This is an area that is increasingly important because sustainability is not just a concern uh, in Australia, but I would say globally. A lot of researchers in marketing are also looking at sustainability or green consumption. Uh, for most consumers, they are aware of the need to go green. But nonetheless, such favorable attitudes towards green consumption are not actually translating into action. We are not actually buying green products in big enough numbers. We talk the talk, but we're not prepared to pay the extra dollar for the walk. Correct. What are the factors that could potentially nudge consumers to not only have a favorable attitude towards green consumption, but to actually act on it? One of my PhD students' uh, thesis actually looks at uh, the effects of social class on green consumption. When you look at the data across the spectrum of these three levels of social class, we find that the middle class are actually driving green consumption more than the lower class and the upper class. So this is a tremendously interesting new finding. That's where I think the impact is, at the societal level. What's the suspicion of why? Is it because the middle class has the volume, that's what counts, or is it something else? It's actually something else that we are finding, and it's very, very interesting. If you look at the upper class, they have a lot of resources, meaning that they are rich, they have money. And when they consume, they just want to please their own senses. You know, they are buying uh, expensive bags or cars just because they can afford to, and it's a form of prestige, etc., etc. So for them, it's the luxury, the prestige that matter more, less than, am I helping to save the environment? At the low end, these are people who perhaps have fewer resources. They may struggle economically. Therefore, for them, their priority isn't about the, the environment per se, but to get by, 
But the middle class, the ones that are covered economically, you know, they have their homes, they have their cars, they have their children in good schools, and yet they have got money left over. And they are the ones who are also very well educated, been through university, they keep up with uh, the news and the events around the world. They are the ones who are increasingly saying, what can we do to help protect the environment? And that's where we are finding, you know, the biggest impact coming from the middle class and compared uh, more so than, you know, the upper or the lower classes. And that's a factor in Chinese consumption as well? I believe so, yes. I'm aware that there is a burgeoning middle class in China who is also increasingly environmentally aware. And I would like to uh, work on this topic, not only in Australia, but also uh, to find research collaborators in China. So smart Australian business people will be looking for the right Guangxi to tap into an increasingly environmentally concerned and wealthy middle class. And be, in prepared, a and be prepared to invest a couple of decades doing it. In a nutshell. Professor, thanks for talking to us. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. You can find out more at monash.edu forward slash impact. Thought Capital is produced by Tina Zanu. Editing and post-production by Nadia Hume. Technical support by Cameron Nickel. Executive producer is Helen Westerman.